and welcome to the To Mom podcast. My name is Valerie Probstfeld. Please join me as we encourage mothers to live their verb while also practicing self-grace. The goal of this podcast is to promote love as an action and live life more authentically. Just think about it. In five generations from now, you will have approximately 30 descendants and the number keeps getting larger and larger. We have more power as moms than we realize. Motherhood, in my opinion, is the most important job in the world. How long does it take to pack for a family vacation? For me, it takes weeks. I sort through all the drawers and discover many items are too small, so I put them into piles, the clothes that fit and the clothes that don't fit anymore. And once I get that all done, the kids will undoubtedly, at least one of them, will come and jump into all those piles and I'll have to start over again. And then also I'll find out that the closets are a mess. So I clean through the closets and also need to clean the entire house because that's important too. I don't want to leave the house uh, not completely clean in case someone comes in while we're on vacation. I want them to not think I'm a total slob. So the house is clean, probably cleaner than it usually is anyway. Um, And then I have to have the dog figure out where we should have the dog stay. I have to get snacks because that's a very big thing too, right? We need to make sure that we have the right snacks on our trips, especially on road trips. And it's funny because with the difference between Matt and I, this will take like three, four weeks for me. And he'll uh, start packing the day of like an hour beforehand and wonder why it took me so long to get everything done. So um, I find it funny that, you know, with all, obviously I have control issues with packing. And before we leave, I have checklists that I like to double check or triple check. And while I'm doing that, I feel a lot of anxiety and control of, okay, I need to make sure we don't forget anything. So my heart starts to race and I kind of have that fight, flight or freeze response that comes, which is funny because obviously this isn't a life-threatening situation, you know, as long as we like have the basics, like we can get whatever we need along the way. But my body doesn't know that. Like I talk about that a lot where our body doesn't know the difference, like the amygdala in particular, that reptilian part of our brain responds to everything as a potential threat. So my heart rate is increased and you know, I can only focus on the, the task at hand. So um, this can happen also like when we're thinking of some other worst case scenario, like with some generalized anxiety or if we're frustrated about something. And in these moments, all I can do is essentially let that stress pass over my body and let the emotion pass and try not to ruminate about it and activate that stress response again, which is easier said than done. But once we got to our destination, so hours later, we arrived at the Smoky Mountain National Park. I noticed that there was a peaceful brook, like little creek area. And the kids, they jumped from rock to rock. And my son, he dropped sticks in it. And my older daughter pretended she was an animal. And at the time, um, 
my younger daughter was a little younger, so I was still holding her and we watched and listened to the water and I could hear its sound flowing through the rocks and the water eventually passed downstream. And it reminded me of my emotions before we left. The angst of worry and control I had, but it then eventually passed, like the water passing through the stream. For me, and research says for many people, it is helpful to allow stress emotions to pass as opposed to resist those emotions or feelings. Since they are a normal and important part of being alive, I mean, it is that fight, flight, or freeze system, and that is part of living, and it, it's our amygdalas trying to protect us. It's just a primitive structure, if you can recall. Um, so sometimes it's how you respond to these feelings and emotions that matters, and allowing them to pass like that water down the stream can often be a helpful course. And I feel like we get opportunities to practice this daily as moms. For my current life stage with three young kids, I experience lots of clothes flying down, the stair railings, and my couch cushions constantly being piled up in towers. And life with young kids is just you know, chaos sometimes, but it can be fun, but chaotic. Poop and farts are just hilarious. And slime can, in fact, stain wood floors. And messes are the standard. So depending on my mood, I can either brush off feelings of annoyance and let them pass or let them intensify. This is not to say to ignore their behavior, but instead responding as opposed to reacting is what I try to work on. And what's the difference? So reacting is using my fight or flight or freeze response and essentially reacting to that false alarm of the amygdala. My body thinks there's some sort of threat or the amygdala thinks there's some sort of threat, so it is going to alarm. For example, there was an incident where permanent markers were drawn on my white cabinets. And indeed, that was a threat to my kitchen, but it was not a threat to my survival. Responding to that would be using my prefrontal cortex or more of that human um, part of the brain, the more evolved part of the brain. And reacting would be using my more primitive amygdala part of the brain where other animals share. So like anger, yelling, and frustration would be reacting. But again, this is easier said than done because I did use some of that amygdala uh, because it was a lot of a mess that we had to clean up. But again, no one's perfect. When yelling happens, because we're, we're all human, even though we have that prefrontal cortex, we still do yell from time to time. Uh, we give each other grace and apologize as appropriate. But I do notice when I practice trying to lengthen that reaction versus response, so maybe I'll react at first, but then try to lengthen that space between, then um, it becomes easier or a bit easier over time. Kind of like practicing anything, like exercising, it gets easier over time. And Viktor Frankl actually um, has dubbed it the space. What he says is between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom.
When your child misbehaves, which is a stimulus, and you yell, response, there is a space. When your child has a fever, a stimulus, and you start to worry about all the worst case scenarios, response, there is a space. And when something happened at work, stimulus, and you are quick-tempered with your spouse, response, there is a space. So again, when anger or an anxious trigger occurs, our body automatically produces stress hormones because of that amygdala, that primitive part of our brain, because it feels threatened. And that could be fact or fiction. Remember, this reaction is a subconscious reaction and it's universal to animals on this planet, which I've given the example before of a bee in my car. I, it is very hard to drive when there's a bee buzzing around in my car because my amygdala thinks that it is more dangerous than distracted driving. So I have to pull over the car and get the bee out so I can not be distracted anymore. What the amygdala does is it signals to our adrenal glands, which sit on the top of our kidneys, to release epinephrine into our bodies. So essentially like um, <clears throat> adrenaline, stress hormone. This produces this sympathetic nervous system response, or otherwise, as I call it, or as it's known, as the fight, flight, or freeze response, which increases your heart rate, your respiratory rate, as well as your blood pressure. It will also make us hyper-focus on the stress at hand. And through activation of norepinephrine, another like part of the adrenaline, and corticotropin, releasing factor, and hypothalamus, which is you know, part of, it's a part of the brain, a structure of the brain, as well as the pituitary gland, which is also part of the brain, the brain I'm sorry, um, it turns on the release of cortisol, which that also comes from the kidney. So it's kind of like the, the brain and the, the adrenal gland, they are working in concert with each other. And that's more when the stress becomes long-term. I'll call it the HPA access, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access. While all this is happening, the amygdala also activates the memory area of our brain, which is called the hippocampus, to remember the event for future survival episodes. And this is all done before our prefrontal cortex is even aware of what's going on. So before we're consciously aware of what's going on, all of this is happening, which is just so wild to think that all of this is going on behind the scenes, that our brain has already registered that there is some type of survival issue. And if it's something that we ruminate about, we're going to have that chronic stress activation with that communication that continues between the brain and the adrenal gland. Um, where we have to essentially like get that prefrontal cortex back in the game, saying like this threat is not a uh, real threat, it's a false alarm. So um, responding versus reacting. Again, when we respond, we use our prefrontal cortex, the most evolved human part of our brains that help problem solve. When we react, we use our amygdala, the zoo animal part of our brain that creates this cascade of stress hormones that pump into our bloodstream. These feelings are all real. They all are real and they are a normal part of survival and again of being of of living, of being human, of being part of this planet. Um but sometimes at least for me, I had to practice tolerating the discomfort for a bit of time. 
If you cannot control your environment, perhaps controlling awareness of your space and reaction time can be helpful. If the frustration or anxiety is intense, taking a few deep breaths and calming down before you respond to the stimulus. This takes practice again, but remember you do have the power to sit with uncomfortable emotions and lengthen the space to respond more as opposed to react. Now, neuroanatomist Joel Bolt-Taylor states, it takes approximately 90 seconds, so a minute and a half, for the hormones to travel through our bodies, so those stress hormones, um, if it's not like the chronic stress activation. However, after that response, so in less than two minutes, our prefrontal, prefrontal cortex can get back into the game and we can decide is this a real or a false alarm. So allowing essentially like that 90 seconds to pass and saying this is, this is uncomfortable, but this is a normal response. And then after that 90 seconds, then thinking about, okay, was that a real threat or maybe not a, um, a survival threat? Dr. Sood uses an example of poison ivy that I like. When one touches the poison ivy plant, it is the chemical that clings to your skin and creates an immune reaction. So it's the reaction which creates the problem, not necessarily the chemical, which I think is a good um, example of kind of what I'm talking about here, of the reaction that sometimes creates the issue as opposed to the stimulus. So again, let me reiterate, this is easier said than done. It's something I work on a lot and I am by no means perfect and no one is. Lengthening our space is sometimes extremely difficult in the moment. It takes time and practice, and the first step is awareness. Dr. Bourne suggests to notice how your body feels when you're triggered. Stress is just stress. It is a very specific process and a cascade of events. Again, the key is how you respond and ride out the stress waves. Amy Morin, author of 13 Things Mentally Strong, Parents Don't Do, gives a good example of Thinking of a pizza, and this is her examples for kids, but I think it also works for adults as well. So when you feel like you are trying to ride those uncomfortable feelings, smelling a pizza, so taking a deep breath in, smelling the pizza, and then a pizza is usually hot when it comes out, so blowing on the pizza, so exhaling to cool down the pizza. So I like that visual for like a deep breathing exercise. Also, for me, distractions can be helpful. Running can be helpful. Sometimes drawing can help as well, especially when my emotions are, are particularly strong. Um, doing a drawing can help. But whatever works for you to help ride those emotional, those uncomfort, uncomfortable emotions. Also, it's important to note that the level of anxiety may fluctuate. Dr. Siegel points out it depends on how well-rested we are in the ability to attend to worry. Sometimes we are simply unable to perform mental visualizations or practice mindfulness. When that's the case, Dr. Siegel recommends getting out into nature or looking at a window and noticing the details of the natural world, the birds, trees, and leaves. So for example, I'm looking out my window now and I'm noticing the leaves swaying and the wind and birds are flying by. So it's that can be helpful as well when you kind of just need to step outside of yourself. 
And again, practice is key. I find the case of Phineas Gage so fascinating. It's an inspiration sometimes um, when I write because it reminds me of our brain's neuroplasticity and ability to change. So many healthcare and psychology schools teach the story of Phineas Gage. You may recognize the name or know the story. So what I find is kind of the aftermath, the most interesting. But let me just review the story. He is the man that changed how the brain is studied. In 1848, Gage experienced an unfortunate accident on the job as a railroad worker. An explosion created a brain injury from an iron rod that penetrated through his brain. He did not die, but it destroyed part of his frontal lobe, which essentially is the prefrontal cortex, that higher level thinking part. After the incident, his personality changed. In essence, he became like a zoo animal we dis- that I discussed about. And so kind of like the, those primitive reptilian parts of the brain, like the amygdala, were overriding more so with him. His doctor um, stated, so Harlow in 1868 um, stated the equilibrium or balance, so to speak, between his intellectual faculties and animal propensities seem to have been destroyed. He is fitful, irreverent, and indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which was not previously his custom, manifesting but little deference for his fellows impatient of restraint or advice when it conflicts with his desires, at times obstinate yet capricious in vacillating, devising many plans for future operations which are no sooner arranged than they are abandoned in turn for others appearing more feasible, a child in his intellectual capacity and manifestations, he has the animal passions of a strong man. So essentially all that saying, he is acting like an animal. Um, and does not have the ability to self-regulate as well as he once did. But interestingly, a few years after his injury, which I feel like isn't discussed as often as it should be, Gage worked as a stagecoach driver in Chile. And this occupation would require significant brain function. And, you know, this was um, so, in like, I don't remember the exact year, but around the 1870s or so. And um, they report that this occupation would require significant brain function. So it points to the possibility that Gage was able to regain a lot of his original function. Um, So it's just really amazing that even if a huge railroad iron destroys part of your brain, it is possible to adapt and rewire again. This reminds us how pliable our brains can be. Neuroscientist Joseph Ledeau described, describes a low road and a high road. The low road is the route to the amygdala, and the high road is one of the prefrontal cortex routes. The low road is much faster than the high road, which, again, we talked about for survival purposes. When the amygdala perceives danger, whether fact or fiction, it quickly dispatches that signal to affect the fight, flight, or freeze. In addition, it can promote that chronic stress hormone, cortisol, from being released, again, from the adrenal glands, the kidneys. And this is all performed without our knowledge of the prefrontal cortex, even being aware. And this 
can last for 90 seconds, like we were saying, and then the ruminating can create it for longer amount of times. So, um, Biesel van der Kolk, I'm sorry, Biesel van der Kolk points out that if it is a false alarm, our quick and automatic stress response can produce big emotional responses, overreactions, or avoidance. For example, if we respond to something our child does that reminds us of our own upbringing, our response may be a low road one. We are not mindful or using our prefrontal cortex at the time. Instead, we may have a more impulsive reaction to yell or be rigid, kind of like that Phineas Gage did a little bit. Um, this is referred by many, by Van, Vanderkolk, Siegel, Hartzell, and more of, um, of these different types of responses with the amygdala versus the prefrontal cortex. They also point out most caregivers do not enjoy being on the low road. However, they have a quick highway to these paths, which makes it easy to continually repeat. And I talk a lot about that with the back roads and the highways. You can check out that episode. I think it's um, my second episode on back roads and highways. It's difficult to exit a highway when you are going 80 miles an hour on a low road. You have to be first intentional, mindful, and bring the high road back into focus. The back road that is typically a higher elevation can allow us to consider others, our own values, and examine things from a clearer head. And this all reminds me of in Austin, Interstate 35 turns uh, into a double-decker highway at um, one point in time just north of the city. And it's a literal example of a low road and a high road. When it rains hard, sometimes a lot of water rushes to the low road in a unique highway waterfall. Sometimes it's challenging to take the high road and a storm floods down to the low road. And Texas is unique in that, you know, this happens, some of the, the flooding, so it can rain pretty quickly, pretty hard. And um, there's a saying in Texas called, turn around, don't drown. A and that really is the case. Like People can be swept away by deceivingly what it looks like is shallow water. And it's very important to take those warnings seriously. Um, it can look deceiving and easy to take a road that's flooded by water. However, you can literally be swept, swept away by in your car. I one time tried to pass through, which appeared to be not much water, and my car struggled. I was scared of it actually happening. And um, it's a good visual on how easy it is to kind of be carried away by the flooded emotions during that stormy weather. So exciting news. I am going to have my first guest on my Two Mom podcast for my next episode. Her name is Hannah Balo, and she's a nurse practitioner, colleague, and friend with lived experience of postpartum OCD. She understands the challenges in finding the right treatment for OCD and the complexity of OCD in the perinatal period. She will share more about what OCD might look like in the perinatal period and how to find the right support for this very challenging but very treatable mental health condition. As always, thank you so much for tuning in today. And I encourage you to subscribe to my newsletter for more information on how you will be able to, to mom more in your life. Thank you so much and have a great day.